0: Well, I've been saying for weeks, best tea ever. So um, I have really high expectations right now for what's going to happen. But I know it will be the best tea ever, frankly, because this is the best story that I've ever gotten to tell. Well, we all know what this and this and this is, right? They are the gadget. It's the essential or that impulse buy that you made at Amazon last week. But I want to tell you that there's actually, it's so much more than that. Because each and every one of these really is a promise. When you clicked buy now from Amazon, they promised that they would bring you that thing to your door in record time. And actually, they're really very good at it. Except when they're not. (laughs) And I learned that just a few months back when I received a package that looked like this. And Pastor Mike brought it in, and he's like, hey, did you order something from Amazon? And I'm like, well, thinking, uh, yeah, it's in your hand, right? And he's like, uh, well, it doesn't seem like there's anything in this package. I'm like, no, they're just really thin, okay? You've been wearing masks, and if you're a glass wearer, what is the thing that's bothered you most about the mask? Fog. And I had found these anti-fog wipes that were going to do the trick, right? So I'm like, no, no, they're just really thin. They're just anti-fog wipes. And he's like, okay. And of course, he hands me the package. I rip it open. And he's exactly right. There's absolutely nothing in this package. (laughs) It is addressed to me. It's sealed up tight. It's been delivered to my door. I've gotten the three standard emails. You know, the one that says, thank you for your order. Your order is shipped. And gives you then the third one, a little picture of it sitting at your front door. And it's been delivered. My credit card had even been charged. But when I opened it up, I got absolutely nothing. Now, the problem is, they did not deliver on their promise, right? Amazon was unfaithful. Now, I thought it was an anomaly uh, until it happened again a few weeks later. This time, I was organizing my drawers at home. Don't you love going from this to this? And from this to this, right? I was doing that for weeks and it was so exciting. If your organizer's here, you get that. And I had found these perfect little boxes that were going to maximize every single square inch of my silverware drawer. And there was little bamboo boxes were gonna fit perfectly. And I had ordered them and I got this instead of an actual set of bamboo boxes. Now, you may not be able to see it, but this package is split straight across the bottom. So when it was delivered to my door, yes, I got those three emails. Thank you for your order. It's shipped. It's delivered to your door. Whatever was in it was no more. And again, I got nothing. It just goes to show you that nothing in this world can be counted on 100% of the time. No promise is foolproof, not from a company, not from a diet, not from a boss, not from a delivery service, not from a medical treatment, not even from a person. There's only one thing in our world that is 100% guaranteed to be faithful every time, and that is our faithful God. The Bible tells us that he never changes. It tells us that he loves his kids all the time and that he will never ever leave us, nor will he ever fail to fulfill his promises to us. And this word faithful extends to every attribute he has. Every characteristic he has is faithful, no matter which one you're talking about. He is 100% guaranteed to be reliable and do exactly what he said he would do. And in our verse today, in 1 Peter 4.19, it talks about our faithful God, particularly on our worst days. First Peter 4.19 says this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter affirms, yes, God is faithful. Yes, God will never falter. Yes, God will never fail, even when you're at the bottom of the barrel, even on the days when you've been disappointed or betrayed when you've gotten a positive test result, when you've faced a trauma of any kind, he will still be faithful. And he tells us that we should do two things when we're in that situation. We should entrust our soul to him, our faithful God, and we should keep doing good. Now the word entrust means literally that we should deposit our valuables with someone for safekeeping. Deposit our valuables with someone for safekeeping. And the most valuable thing we have is our life who we are. And the most trustworthy person is God. So we can confidently hand over our God and even our pain to this one who is so faithful. And to prove that we are handing over our life and our pain to him, even on those worst days, we are to keep doing good. It's not to do good once, do a good deed here and a good deed there. It's actually the word to continue to do good, to keep obeying him, to continue to do what is right. On our worst days, when we're suffering, we are to entrust ourselves to our God and we're to obey him. And I can tell you one thing for sure about our tea lady, and that is that she has been hit by what I call the two-by-four of pain more times than any of us could ever count or probably endure. And through each one of those times when she's been hit by things that God has allowed sovereignly to come into her life, she has done this. She has trusted him, and she has obeyed him. Her name is Johnny Erickson, and it is my absolute pleasure to tell you her story today. Johnny was the youngest of four girls. uh, Her older sister is Linda, and then there's Jay, Johnny's best friend, Kathy, and finally Johnny. She was named for her dad, Johnny. His name was John, of course. They all loved the outdoors, they loved camping, they loved horses. They even had a horse farm in Maryland, Baltimore, Maryland area. Uh, Johnny's dad was an Olympic wrestler and uh, very active and very athletic, and so was his mom. His, her mom taught uh, all the girls to play tennis and swim. They did all kinds of things outdoors. They were a tight-knit and loving family that did everything together. Johnny was particularly athletic. She loved horses, and she began riding horse when she was only four years old. She began showing those horses, and she won lots of prizes through the years. But her sport in high school was lacrosse, and she was the captain of her team as a senior. When she was 15 and she was a sophomore, she was invited to Young Life. It was an organization that was committed to reaching teenagers for Jesus Christ. That night, the speaker said, you know, none of us, none of us can obey or live up to all of God's rules. All of us fail, which means all of us are sinners. She'd never really thought of herself as a sinner before, but boy, could she see when he said that, of course, yes, I'm a sinner. And it was that night that everything kind of clicked in her head finally, and she realized for the first time that that's why Jesus came. He came to live the perfect life that she couldn't. And he came to die on the cross to pay for the sins so that she had so that she wouldn't have to. And it all made perfect sense to her that night. And so she surrendered her life to follow Christ and to begin to obey him. And she turned her back on the decisions and the choices that she had made before and became a real Christian that day. Now, during her senior year, she began dating a guy whose name was Dick Filbert. He was quiet, he was serious, and he was a mature Christian. She got accepted to Western Maryland College, and uh, she was actually gonna be a physical therapist. And uh, everything seemed to be going really well in her life. The only thing she was kind of concerned about and pondering in her life was that she hadn't grown as much as a Christian that that she thought she should have in the two years since becoming a Christian, getting saved. And so she prayed this prayer to God as she had just recently graduated from high school and was 17 years old, in 1967. She said, Lord, if you're really there, do something in my life to change me. You know how weak I am, how possessive I am of dick. I am sick of the hypocrisy. Please do something to turn it around. A few weeks later, her sister Kathy and her boyfriend invited Johnny to go swimming said, hey, do you want to go to the beach with us? And she was like, sure, yeah. So she jumped in the car with them, and they went out swimming at the Chesapeake Bay. And Johnny was a great swimmer. In fact, she swam quickly out to this raft on the Chesapeake Bay, not even touching the ground. She was such a good swimmer. She just swam right out there. Immediately, she climbed up on the raft, and she dove. She dove out into the water. But almost immediately, she hit her head on something. And... Uh, She no longer had control over her body. And she felt a strange, like, electrical buzzing that went throughout her body. And as you can imagine, when she couldn't get her body or her head up to the surface of the water, she began to panic, as we all would have. Help, she thought. Please help me in her head. She could hear Kathy calling her from a ways away. And she started praying, oh, God, help my sister to see that I'm in trouble. Johnny! Johnny, her sister started calling, and again, it was far away, but it was getting closer. She said, are are you all right? I mean, are you looking for shells or something? Johnny was praying and trying not to panic in her mind, and she's going, no, Kathy, help me, help me, come find me, help me. Kathy was finally standing over her, and she said, wow, wow, Johnny, did you dive in here? It's so shallow. How could you do that? And she finally pulled up on Johnny's shoulders. When Johnny's head hit the surface, she gulped in oxygen, and she cried out, thank you, God, thank you. Now, Johnny could see that her arm was slung over her sister's shoulder, but she felt like it was tied to her chest at that point. That's when she realized that she could not move anything. Kathy dragged her up on one of those inflatable rafts that we used to use back then and pushed her to the shore. And someone called the paramedics. Kathy, I can't move. Hold me, please, Johnny said. She was frightened. She wondered how long it would take for this numbness to wear off and for her to get back to normal. By the time they got to the Baltimore Hospital that night, that summer night, it was already dark, and it was cold, and Johnny just wanted to go home. It was loud in the emergency room, and there were people everywhere. She was strapped to a table, and a curtain was drawn around her. She said to the nurse, Can you tell me what happened to me? And the nurse said, the doctor will be here soon. Johnny said, uh, how long will I be staying? When can I go home? You'll have to ask the doctor, the nurse said firmly, and pulled out a large pair of scissors. What are you going to do with those? She gasped. Have to take your bathing suit off. It's regulations. Oh, no, please, please don't. It's new. It's my favorite. Don't cut it off. Sorry. Ka-chum, ka Pretty soon, the trash can was filled with pieces of blue bathing suit. The nurse put a sheet over her naked body and left her there. She'd never felt so alone and vulnerable in her life. And then at one point, the sheet slipped off of her, and her breasts were exposed, and she couldn't do anything about it. And she began to cry, as she realized just how serious the situation was. Soon, a man walked in and he said, I'm Dr. Cheryl, and you're Joni, right? She explained it was pronounced Johnny after her dad. Okay, Johnny, well, let's see what happened here. And he pulled out a long pin. And uh, he said, can you feel this? As he started pricking her feet and her legs. No. How about this? She shut her eyes so she could concentrate, hoping that she could feel something. Didn't work. When she opened her eyes, she found that he was holding her hand and he was poking her fingers and her wrist and her forearm. But when he got all the way up to her shoulder, she went, ah, yes, 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 I can feel that. Then he took out a pair of electric clippers. She wondered what he was going to use that for until he started towards her head. Oh, no, please, please, not my hair, as she saw big chunks of blonde, wet hair falling to the floor. At that point, a nurse made a lather and began to shave her head while another put an IV into her. She felt faint, but she could hear this high-pitched buzzing sound. Then she could feel someone pinning her head down while someone else drilled into her skull. She grew faint, and fortunately that's the point in which the anesthesia finally kicked in, and she was at peace, at least for a moment. When she woke up, she was in the ICU, and she found that her skull was anchored with a gigantic pair of metal tongs into place. And she was strapped into a frame made of canvas and metal. It was called a striker frame. She would be in this frame strapped in there so that she could only see face up or face down. When she was face up, she could see the couple feet directly above her eyeballs on the ceiling. When she was face down, She could see just a couple of feet right around, underneath her face. She could see shoes as they came close by. And that was about it. She was flipped in the striker frame every two hours, 24/7, around the clock for months. Visitors were allowed into the ICU for five minutes an hour. The doctors explained to Johnny and her family that she had broken her neck. And uh, that she had broken it between the fourth and the fifth cervical vertebrae. And that it had caused quadriplegia. Quad, meaning four. She had lost the feeling and the function in all four of her limbs. Both of her legs and both of her arms. And total loss of her bowel and bladder function. Dick, her boyfriend, came to visit her frequently. And he would climb underneath the striker frame to talk to her. To pray with her. To read to her. He liked to read the Bible to her, verses like Romans 8 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Everything works for good, Dick said. That means your accident does too, Johnny. But I've already been in this stupid hospital for a month, Johnny said, and I haven't seen much good. I'm having nightmares and hallucinations from the drugs that they're giving me. I'm stuck in this frame. Tell me, Dickie, how can this be good? He said, I I don't know. But I still think we need to claim God's promises and we need to trust him that he will work this out for good. And he prayed for her. And then one day, he came bounding in on a hot summer day with his jacket zipped all the way to the top. He said he had run up all nine flights of stairs, and when she asked him why, he unzipped it, and he pulled out a puppy. And the puppy nuzzled up against her and licked her face, and she said, thank you, Dickie, he is beautiful. Thank you so much for bringing him to see me. Well, the Ericksons had hoped over time, and with hard work, that Johnny would get better. But the doctors firmly told them her injuries were permanent. She would not walk. No matter how many times Johnny said, I'm going to work hard. I'm I'm athletic. I can do this. I'll I'll just try harder. I said, no, it's not going to happen. Well, that news, coupled with the fact that all of her friends from college were going away to school that fall, led Johnny to be very discouraged, as you can imagine, to become depressed. She wouldn't eat, and she just got weaker and weaker. Then a couple friends from high school showed up to see her who hadn't seen her yet in the hospital. She'd been there for a couple months. They came over to her face strapped in there and they choked out, oh, Johnny, right before they both ran for the door, one of them vomiting and one of them sobbing. Johnny was horrified. No one else had responded this way. What's wrong? And she demanded when her friend Jackie came in to see her that day, get me a mirror. You get me a mirror, and you get it for me now. Jackie was like, no, no, no. I'll, I'll just just—I'll bring it the next time I come. Just the, Yeah, I'll, I'll bring in that special set you've got at home. She was adamant, no, you go to that nurse's station, you find me a mirror, and you find it now. When Johnny looked in the mirror, she gasped. And she said, oh, God, how can you do this to me? She writes later, the figure in the mirror was scarcely human. I saw two eyes darkened and sunk in their sockets. My weight had dropped from 125 to 80. I was a little more than a skeleton covered with yellowish skin. My shaved head just accentuated my grotesque skeletal appearance. My teeth were black from the medicine, and I felt like vomiting, too. Please take it away, Johnny told Jackie. I never want to look in a mirror again. I cannot take this anymore. I'm dying, Jackie. Look at me. I'm dying. I'm almost dead now. Why did I suffer like this? Jackie, you've got to help me. They're just keeping me alive. It's not right, I'm dying anyway. Why don't they just let me die? Jackie, please, you've got to help me. And she pressured her friend again and again to bring her pills or slit her wrists, which of course Johnny could not do for herself. Jackie wept and she said over and over again, no, Johnny, I can't, I just can't do it. Well, Dick would hitchhike six hours from college to home as frequently as he could. He had to quit football, he lost his scholarship, his grades went down, but he just kept coming. Johnny begged him to come. She told him that she had nightmares, nightmares that he would leave her for some other girl. Um, She told him she couldn't live without him. She said, I love you. And he said, I love you too. And he said, I will wait forever for you. Remember that, I will always be here for you, Johnny. Well, in rehab, They started to work, after she left the hospital, they went to a rehab center, they began to work Johnny's arms. Now, she couldn't use her arms like you and I do, but she could move her arms by using her back and shoulder muscles, almost by throwing her arms, she could use them a little bit. And she started trying to get stronger and stronger in using her arms. Her physical therapists just kept helping her, and they suggested that she begin to do things with her mouth that she used to do with her hands and her fingers. So they said, we'd like you to try to put a pencil in there and learn to write that way, and she did. Pretty soon she was able to write to her mom and dad a letter home by putting a pen in her mouth. She was also an artist before her accident, so they put a paintbrush in her teeth as well, and she began to paint, and she got better and better Here are some sketches that Johnny Erickson has done with her teeth and a pencil. Here are some paintings that she did with a brush in her teeth. As she became more productive, her attitude obviously got better and more positive. And she began to think of how she could glorify God in her new life she thought back to what she had prayed right before her accident when she prayed lord do something in my life to change it and it seemed that he had <laughs> she soon was fit for splints rinse wrist splints it would make her wrists more stable and make her able to do more with her wrists, even though they couldn't move on on their own. She could put, for instance, a bent spoon in them and begin to feed herself. She was also given a wheelchair, and uh, the very first time she was in the wheelchair with her wrist splints, it took her two hours to go just 30 feet down to physical therapy. But her therapists were always there urging her forward. Eventually, she got an electric wheelchair, which opened up a whole new world, and she even began making trips to the Taco Bell around the corner. (laughs) If the clerk was ready to open up her wallet and find the money, she was in. She couldn't wait to go to Taco Bell. She would spend almost two years in rehab, but before she left and went home for good, the doctors firmly told her, you're not getting back the use of your arms. No matter how much you work on this, they're not coming back. They're gone for good. This was a very tough pill for Johnny to swallow. She had worked very hard. Immediately, she wrote to Dick, and she told him that she loved him. She didn't want to lose him, but that she couldn't marry him, and she wanted him to start dating other people. Quadriplegia, she said, was just too hard to put on him for life. They were only 19 years old at this point. Jackie had accepted that she wasn't going to walk again, but she had always assumed that someday she would be able to cook, clean, even enjoy married love, because she would have her arms back. She realized that was never gonna be the case, that she was gonna be a quadriplegic as long as she lived. And uh, Dick tried to talk her out of this, He said he loved her, he said, I think you and your paralysis are a gift from God, and I still want to marry you. Johnny told him he was being romantic and not realistic. He didn't want to break up, but Johnny insisted. She was resolute, so with tears in his eyes, he said, you're right, I guess. Maybe I can't deal with this. Maybe I'm not up for it. And he left. Well, Johnny didn't handle that all so well, even though it was her decision, of course, it was still difficult. She was very upset and depressed, and that's when God brought a man named Steve Estes into her life, and he was actually a high schooler who was younger than her, but he was on fire for God. He loved God's word, he loved God, and he started a Bible study with Johnny and her friends. And as Johnny learned more verses, She learned to trust God more. She got a better attitude. It started to turn things around for her. She grew more hopeful. She even began to start going out and doing things with her friends in her wheelchair. She even started taking college classes. And she was invited to go to a youth group and share her story and talk about our faithful God. And she started to see her accident not as a tragedy, but as a gift that God was using to conform her to the image of Christ. Steve told her she was like Paul. Paul, who said, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Steve said, Paul had his prison chains and you have your chair. You can rejoice in suffering because he is allowing you to suffer on his behalf. And she began to tell her story more and more. She also began to paint more and more. She thought this is a way she could support herself and move out of her parents' home. And doors began to open for her. She was even interviewed by Barbara Walters on the Today Show. And because of that, all kinds of offers came in to have art exhibits and to show her art across the country and opened up speaking engagements, people wanting her to come and tell her story. When Johnny spoke, she said this, wouldn't it be exciting right now If in front of you I could miraculously be healed, if I could get up out of my chair and onto my feet, wouldn't that be thrilling? But far more exciting and wonderful in the long run would be the miracle of your salvation and the healing of your soul. And she would pray for their conversion. She would pray for people to become real Christians because of her story. She wrote the first part of her story in a book called Johnny. It was written in 1976, when she was 24 years old. We have them for sale for you in the bookstore today. The last line of this first of three autobiographies that Johnny would write, the last line says this, if even one person is drawn to Christ by this message, it would make the wheelchair worth all the past eight years have cost me. And now, 45 years later, The book, Johnny, has been translated into over 30 languages, and it's still changing lives today. But that's not the end of the story, and I'm not stopping there. Because 12 years later, she sat down to write her second autobiography. And it's a book called Choices and Changes. Sadly, it's out of print now. You're going to have to hunt for this one. Um, But I didn't want you to miss it. I think it's an important part of her story. Not only do I think it reveals... um, her heart and who she is, but it it sets the stage for a new season of her life and shows you the beginnings of what I think is her greatest legacy. It tells us that in the late 70s, Johnny was asked to make the Johnny book into a movie and to play herself in the movie. Um, A company called Worldwide Pictures, which was an associated company of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, wanted to make this film. They had just made The Hiding Place, if you've seen that movie, The Story of Corey Ten Boom, they wanted to make this movie on Johnny. And again, they wanted her to star in it. Now, no one pressured her to do this, but everybody agreed, hey, if this story came from the mouth of the person who actually lived it, this is gonna be even more powerful. So she prayed, and she sought counsel, and she agreed. And she and her sister, Jay, and her friend, Judy, all moved to L.A. Uh, to work with the best in the business to produce this movie that was to be shown in theaters worldwide. Johnny didn't think it was going to be that hard for her to relive these early days or her accident. She was like, it, it, it's going to be okay. But when the, her twin here, the girl in the blue bathing suit, the actress who was going to play her, um, In the opening scenes, when she met her and started talking to her, even on those first days, uh, Johnny kept telling herself, I'm fine. I'm content. This was a long time ago. God is in charge, right? That's the kinds of things we say to ourselves. She says 11 years had passed, and and she'd been speaking regularly to church groups and all kinds of people about what God had done for her. But from the very beginning, from the very first days of meeting um, the crew and the actors, she says that 1 Corinthians 10, 12 was running through her head. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Just kept going round and round in her head. And when the paramedics floated her out into the water on her back, and then flipped her over, face down into the water, and the director called, action. And then that actress who was playing her sister Kathy just slowly meandered her way over to her. She says at that moment everything changed. It got a whole lot harder for her to play herself. Um, She was forced to face all those horrible hospital scenes. She was forced to do it wearing a paper gown and nothing else. She was strapped in that striker gown, that striper frame for hours and hours. It was tough. And even the puppy. (laughs) It took four puppies and 15 takes. And they had to smear liver on her face just to get that puppy to come up (laughs) and lick her. It was humiliating, and it was very, very hard. But she says some things weren't quite as hard. She says, it wasn't so hard to play those I'm angry at God scenes. Said it also wasn't so hard to kiss the guy who was playing dick. Especially when he leaned over to her and said, wow, you kiss good. (laughs) And it only took two takes to get that scene right. She said uh, it had been a decade since she'd been kissed. And she wondered if she would ever be kissed again. She also kind of liked one particular guy. He was the gaffer. The man who lit the scenes, he was particularly attentive to her. He noticed when she was tired. He noticed when it was too hot for her. He noticed when she needed a little extra help. In fact, he went to dinner with her and her friends, and he was even more attentive there. He would cut her meat. He would hold her glass. He would wipe her face. So when this successful... Hollywood insider who drove a Porsche asked her on a date. She said yes. Over time, the filming got harder and harder, and Johnny got thinner and thinner. I mean, after all, the directors told her she needed to lose a few. And it just got more difficult. Her friends started to notice a change in Johnny. They noticed that something was off. She was quiet. She was tired. She was irritable. And when the rap party happened and the crew was there, all Johnny could say was, thank you, only to have Billy Graham walk in about two minutes later and say what she knew that she should have said. This is what he said. This film will speak to millions, millions who are paralyzed spiritually. People without Christ are crippled far more than Johnny, This movie that you find people are working on will tell of Johnny's victory in Christ. What a great encouragement to so many who are suffering in so many different ways. Worldwide Picture thanks you for the hard work you're doing and we thank you, Johnny, for selflessly giving so much and reliving so many difficult memories for the spiritual benefit of thousands. And that movie went on to do that and more across the globe. You can actually even see the Johnny movie now. I watched it on Amazon Prime. I'm sure it's on other streaming services. And you can watch this movie that she starred in. Well, when Johnny got home, unsettled isn't even the right word for it, but she was unsettled. She wasn't the woman that went out to Hollywood six months earlier. She justified herself in prayer. She prayed this to God. You know, God, this movie was your idea. I didn't ask to bear my soul. I only wanted to do something for you. What you see in my heart isn't sin. Look at all the sacrifices I've made. How I confronted all those horrible hospital memories. It's understandable as I sit in my wheelchair that I would be tempted. I've been content to be single all this time. My friends, they're getting married, they're having babies. What's wrong with going out on a date every now and then? Even if that person doesn't know you. I mean, living in Hollywood would make anyone a little crazy. There aren't a lot of Christians, you know, and and I didn't have much time to get into my Bible. This isn't sin. I'm just tired. I need some time off, and I need some understanding from you. Hmm. Then a few months later, she was back in California doing a few post-production things on the movie, and she visited Grace Community Church, and she listened to Pastor John MacArthur. He was talking that day about the obedience that was sure to follow a real decision for Christ. Frankly, she thought he was being a little too harsh that day. (laughs) Until they flipped over to Matthew 23, and she read Jesus' words to the religious leaders of his day. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And she realized that she was just like those men. Her insides were evil and wrong and bad, and they did not match her outsides. And she repented of her sin, and she started over with God again. After that, she decided it was time to stop writing books and making movies. It was time to get out there and actually help people just like herself and point them to Jesus Christ. And she began to bring tangible help and hope to the disabled. She wanted to bring them to Jesus. She knew that she was incredibly blessed to have been a real Christian when she broke her neck. She realized how incredibly blessed she was that she had a group of godly people around her who were pointing her to Christ in her worst moments. But she also knew that other people didn't have that benefit, and she wanted to do what she could to fix that. So when she was 30 years old, she moved out of her house, on her own to California to start a brand new ministry. And uh, she moved to a little house that was adjacent to Grace Community Church that um, owned that little house, and she met a man named Dr. Sam Britton. He was a strong Christian who had begun the ministry to to the disabled in Grace Community Church, but he also had started a center, a center for those with physical limitations at Cal State Northridge. Johnny was blown away when she showed up up at Dr. Sam's place. He had braces, he had machines, he had crutches, he had wheelchairs of every kind. Um, And there were a variety of people with different limitations, all laughing and working and having the greatest time at Dr. Sam's place, working out, getting therapy. This is a picture of it as it is today. It's called the Brown Center, and it's on the campus of Cal State Northridge. Almost as soon as she was introduced to Dr. Sam, he tried to convince Johnny that she needed to learn to drive. So he got her strapped up on this biking machine for her to strengthen her muscles. He pointed to a girl who was whizzing by in a wheelchair, and he said, she drives one of them. Johnny was stunned. She was like, hey, I I have more function than that girl. And uh, Dr. Sam said to her, I know that you can do it. I will design an extra... Exercise program just for you, and you'll be on the freeways in no time. Well, Johnny watched Dr. Sam, and she decided that that is exactly what she wanted her new ministry to be. She saw Dr. Sam go from person to person and give each one of those people his 100% attention, kindness, love. It was exactly how she pictured that Jesus would be. And that's what she wanted for her new ministry. And she called her new work Johnny and Friends. She based it off of a story, the vision of her ministry, in Luke 14. In that story, a man is throwing a great banquet, and he sends his servants out, and he says, invite people. Invite that one, and that one, and that one. And you know what happens when they go out and invite that one, and that one, and that one? Everybody makes excuses for why they can't come. So in Luke 14, he says go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame that my house may be filled. At the beginning, Johnny and Friends was just about answering the hundreds of letters that she was getting from her movie and her book and her art, all those things. Um, But then she began recording radio spots and encouraging not just the disabled, but those who cared for them and really anybody who's discouraged. And I would I highly recommend that when you leave here, you open up your podcast app and you subscribe to her podcast. Four minutes, as only Johnny can do it, filling it with joy, but also the little kick in the backside that we need that Johnny is so good at. One day, Dr. Sam gave Johnny a gift from Grace Community Church. It was a customized van just for her and these are pictures from the actual day she of course is shocked and uh she got to ride up on the lift and then get roll up into the driver's seat which basically just locked her chair in and then over time they taught her how to drive with a joystick and turn and how to turn on the ignition and the air conditioner and the windshield wipers with her mouth and her forehead and okay the state of california took A little bit of coaxing at the DMV, but eventually she became a licensed driver in the state of California. At Johnny and Friends they were brainstorming new ways that they could help the disabled. Um, Johnny had realized that the key to her own recovery was the army of loving people that she had around her, so they decided they needed to train an army of people who could lift quadriplegics from chairs, straighten their clothes, empty their leg bags of urine that have collected, and all those kinds of things. So they began training people. This is actually their first training class. All these people wanted to figure out how they could be the hands and feet of Jesus, quite literally, for people, and to serve them with love. And this um, was the seeds of what now Johnny and Friends calls short training, the Christian Institute for disability and internship programs that are part of their ministry today. And then one day, at church, there was a guest speaker. Oh, those dreaded guest speakers. (laughs) Johnny's mind was wandering. She was so distracted, she just began to look up and down the rows. And then she saw this one head of thick, black hair sitting about six rows in front of her. He was a man, and he was sitting alone, and she decided, I can't, I can't even follow this guy, so I'm going to pray for that man. She prayed for him, for his walk with God. She prayed for his time in the Word. She prayed for him to be a prayer warrior. She prayed for him to be strong in Christ. And after church, she wanted to go and introduce herself and tell, her, tell him that she'd been praying for him, but she thought that was going to be just way too weird. Some woman walking up, well, not walking, rolling up to you. <laughs> and saying, hey, I prayed for you today. Um, But pretty soon, actually within weeks, someone introduced her to Ken Tata, And she said, turn around. (laughs) And there it was, the head she'd been praying for. Um, They had a good laugh. And they started to get to know each other. She found out that he was a 36-year-old history teacher and football coach at the local high school. And they started spending more time together, and he showed up at her birthday party a couple months later. And after everybody left, one of her friends came over and started emptying her leg bag of urine just when Ken walked in. And without batting an eye, he asked her out on a date. She's like, okay. Hey, if you can handle that, let's go. (laughs) So he came over a couple days later, and her friends taught Ken how to lift her how to straighten her clothes, how to fold her wheelchair, how to make sure she was taken care of at the restaurant, and he listened attentively to everything. He even confessed that he had been working out that week and lifting weights (laughs) so that he could lift her. And they tell the story that when he did it, he bent down and he said, "Hiya!" And she's like, great, awesome. (laughs) She actually asked him, how much have you been lifting? And he said, 175 pounds. She was like, what? I do not weigh 175 pounds. <laughs> and he was like, oh, I know that. I know exactly how much you weigh now. But uh, I just didn't want to drop you. Well, they had a wonderful evening together until she needed her leg bag emptied. Hmm. And he rolled her into the hallway where the bathroom is. And then they looked at, there's a men's room and there's a women's room. Hmm. How is this going to work? She'd never had this problem before. And so she was like, well, grab the bag, the bottle out of my bag and let's go out to a tree. He was like, a tree? <laughs> She's like, hey, it's better than a fire hydrant. <laughs> so that's how they started. And they began spending more and more time together and seeing each other. But after one very difficult day of volunteering at Johnny and Friends and loss of stress and weariness, helping um, disabled people, mentally challenged people, they were weary. And Johnny turned to Ken and she said, you don't really know me, Ken. And Ken said, well, I think I know the real you. She said, no, you know a movie, you know a book. There's so much about me that you don't know. And I'm not just talking about bathrooms and leg bags and being paralyzed. She said, sometimes I'm not a very nice person to be with at all. He said, what are you saying? She said, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I just think we should end it now while it doesn't hurt. And we should go our separate ways and just be friends. Johnny saw tears in his eyes as he left that night, but he let her go. The next morning, Johnny's caregivers found um, a pressure sore on Johnny. And the pressure sore is when her bones are rubbing against her fragile, very, very fragile skin that she has and basically opens up a wound, an, an actual bleeding wound. And so she was going to be staying in her wheelchair for the next few months, and he came over as soon as he heard the next day. He brought flowers, he went shopping, he made dinner. Um, he set a uh, TV tray with a linen napkin and a candle and he put soup in her mouth as she was laying there and wiped her mouth. After dinner, he cleaned everything up, he played a game with her. He had brought a book on friendship, he said, with a grin. And uh, <laughs> then he read the Bible with her and played a game and, and he said goodnight. But he said, I'll see you tomorrow. And he came back day after day after day, and he took care of her. And uh, he even rigged up her easel so that she could paint while she was in bed there. And then one day, he leaned over and he kissed her with her dirty hair and her greasy face and her bad breath. And he said, just friends, right? (laughs) Well, Johnny and Ken then went out fishing. When she was finally well, he took her fishing, which is his favorite pastime. And he brought her parents And they all had this wonderful afternoon together. And as Johnny looked over and saw Ken untangling this hopelessly tangled mess of her dad's fishing reel, she thought of Luke "One who is faithful with a very little is also faithful in much. And she wondered if this was the man that could give her the patience she would need for a lifetime. Later that day, Ken disconnected their boats from each other and slid away from her parents' boat and had some private time with Johnny. And uh, he said to her, I love you, Johnny. And she said, I love you, too. He said, it could work, you know. I've been watching. I know that I could learn to do the things that people are doing for you. You're talking marriage? She asked, surprised. Our life together could be a real ministry for the Lord, Johnny. I I don't know. I don't know, she said. "I I need time. You just told me that you love me, Ken said. Yes, but marriage is a big step. I have to be sure about this. There's my disability, there's Johnny and friends, and I've been in bed for two months, maybe I'm not thinking straight. <laughs> he said, oh, I get it. This is the I'm calling the shots, Johnny, coming out now. You're no longer in bed anymore. And, and he said, I just have to tell you, I will not be controlled. I love God, I love his word. I can lead and I can make good decisions for us. And she relaxed and she knew this was the kind of strong man that she needed. So they talked and they talked about cooking and cleaning and about love in a quadriplegic marriage. And then one day, when Ken walked into her studio and asked her to marry him, she said yes. This is their engagement photo. So sweet. They went to talk to her parents, and her parents, of course, were concerned, especially about how love in their marriage was going to work. Ken said this Some well meaning people have suggested that we go away for a weekend to experiment. But Johnny's disability does not give us an excuse to sin. God will bless us if we obey him. And that's what we want most of all. It will be fine. After they got engaged, Ken traveled with Johnny and Jay and Judy, and he needed to know and get a taste for what this was like. She was traveling across the globe all the time. The place they went then in 1982 was communist Romania. Now, it was a pretty rugged place then, back in 1982. The government actually assured them that there was not a disabled community in their country at all. And brought them from almost empty rehab center to almost empty rehab center to almost empty rehab center to prove it. But then a a local pastor asked them to come and share at his church that night and the place was busting at the seams. There were people hanging from balconies, shoulder to shoulder across aisles, sitting in window sills, and there were disabled people everywhere. They were lying on mats, they were sitting in wheelchairs with mismatched bicycle parts. They had come to hear Johnny's story and to hear of hope in Christ. They had read her book, they had seen her movie, and they wanted to see this American who was just like them. And that night when she got home, Um, to the hotel, she and all the other Americans with her, they found their pockets were full of notes. People had shoved notes into their pockets asking and begging them for help. And that was when another branch of Johnny and Friends was born, the Wheels for the World Ministry. They didn't know when or how, but they knew that they were going to come back to that place, and they were going to bring wheelchairs and Bibles and the hope of Jesus Christ to people who needed it. And over the last years, they have distributed thousands of wheelchairs across the globe. On Johnny's wedding day, she looked beautiful, in her gown with her daisies on her lap, and her dad walked her down the aisle with his crutches slowly beside her. Steve Estes was officiating along with John MacArthur at Grace Community Church, and Ken was watching for her to come around the corner. When she did, she says, everything else faded away. She was her beloved's, and her beloved was hers. And she says, in her heart, she longed, she longed to run to him, this good, ordinary, upright man. But it couldn't happen. But she said, that was okay, because he loved me. And he chose me. And he thought that I was beautiful. They went to Hawaii on their honeymoon. Of course, they had to go with a couple extra friends because, frankly, Ken did not know what needed to be done quite yet, but they lived in a hotel down the street. Um, But it started off a little bit rocky because immediately, as you would expect, Johnny had already been kind of a famous person for over a decade at this point. Uh, She was recognized on the beach. Ken had gone down to put his toes in the water and she was sitting there in her chair and this family came over and started chatting with her and she was like, okay, well, um, I'm on my honeymoon, you know, and they're chatting, chatting. And um, Ken started walking up to them. Well, they mistook Ken for a local tour guide. <laughs> um, until he leaned down and gave Johnny a hug, and she introduced him as her new husband, Ken Tata. Well, it was obvious that these people um, did not expect him. So they very hesitantly said to her uh, and him, uh, Pleased to meet you, Mr. Erickson, and excused themselves. Well, they obviously don't approve of me, Ken said, as they walked away. Johnny said, who cares what they think? Who cares? And he said, Mr. Erickson, I mean, do I look Swedish to you? (laughs) They laughed it off, but um, she knew he was hurt. And uh, she wished, she wished so badly that she could protect Ken from her public and her private life that he had literally just signed on for a lifetime of it. Johnny and Ken together wrote of their relationship in the third and final autobiography, Johnny and Ken, an untold love story. It is down the hall in the bookstore for you. Yes, Johnny would continue to travel the globe, now with her new husband, and they would do all kinds of ministries, sometimes together, sometimes she would speak alone, and she would tell her story and highlight the goodness and faithfulness of God. She would remind people that nothing is a surprise to God, nothing is a setback of His plans, nothing can thwart His purposes, and nothing is beyond His control. She would also meet with countless government officials and fight for better access and practical help for those with physical limitations, including the Americans for Disabilities Act and the ethical use of stem cells. As they, they did travel the globe for sure, but being at home was an adventure all its own. I mean, the daily grind of quadriplegia was a rough gig. Somebody, somebody had to do all the shopping and the cleaning and the laundry and the cooking, and that somebody, of course, was Ken as well as cleaning, dressing, and toileting, and flipping his wife from one side to the other every two hours, all night long, every night. It was quite the grind. He rarely had time off or minutes to himself, although Johnny insisted that he go out and fish every once in a while. This was very hard work, but it was more than that. You know, at school, Ken was an important and contributing individual. He was Coach Tata. He was... um, A very important part of the staff but in Johnny's world it's pretty invisible right most people ignored him altogether and a lot of the decisions that were made in the ministry had nothing to do with him Um, imagine how that felt to step away and let somebody else shine over and over and over again the great thing is Ken never had a problem with that Life for Johnny and Ken was steady, over 40 years that they've been married, until the day that she was inextricably racked with pain. No one could explain why a girl who can't feel anything from her neck down has this radical pain. It's plagued her for decades. This is a woman who doesn't even take an aspirin, and she has an amazingly high threshold of pain, and she describes it as jagged, twisted, razor-edged agony. No medicine, no position, no massage, no procedure eases it. Her pain is emotionally, physically, and spiritually draining, not just for her, but for everyone who takes care of her. It's more time-consuming, it's less joyful. And since both Ken and Johnny have struggled with discouragement and depression, the battle to keep it away is very real. Of course, we know Johnny faced it into the hospital when at the age of 17 she wanted to take her life, but Ken, at the same time, who was kind and gentle, On the other side of the country but he lacked the type a killer instinct that his japanese father wanted him to have also faced it Um, but one day he was brought to young life and he became a christian and as he um, found purpose in work and in being a teacher he had his depression fade away he even dated some japanese girls that his parents wanted him to Until he met Johnny and he said, she was beautiful. She lived an exciting life. She loved Jesus and she cared deeply for other people. She was interested in me and in a wheelchair. What else did I need to know? (laughs) But on the other side of marriage and caring for a quadriplegic wife, um, the temptation to become depressed returned. Ken admits that he's felt trapped at times. And Johnny totally understands. I mean, if anybody gets it, she does. So he has had to fight but Johnny and Ken are committed to being married and to staying married all the way through, and Ken is committed to being a good husband to his wife, to loving God and his wife. It's become much more difficult as he watches his wife in agony, and there's literally nothing he can do to help her. It's much, much more difficult than it used to be, but he fights. He doesn't always win, but he fights. He fights in prayer, he fights in his Bible, and he pray- fights with a group of godly men that he's surrounded himself with who help him and urge him on and even take him fishing sometimes. In a key pivotal moment of him crying out to God, he said, he sensed God saying to him these words, Johnny is the most precious gift I have ever given you. Take care of her and he's redoubled his efforts in doing that. A few years later in 2010, Johnny was diagnosed with breast cancer. Her first thought was this. Yes, this is how God is going to do it. This is how I will be released. How long will it take to die? How bad could it be? There will of course be pain, but how does that compare to what I've already suffered? And who cares about that if heaven is waiting on the other side? It's just one more assignment from God. And her depression lifted that very day. She has often longed for heaven, and she's even written about it. I highly recommend this book. It's in the bookstore for you. It's sitting on my shelf at home, too. I've read it. You should read it. So good. Johnny is ready to go whenever God called her. But she's never going to rush the process along, either. She's never going to take it into her own hands. She's going to wait for God. She did hope that cancer would be her ticket out, and she wrote this. Um, It was going to work out all right. (laughs) There was going to be an end to this. Just one more brief battle and then freedom. She said, this is not a death wish. It is a life wish. It sounded so great as she suffered through what for a quadriplegic is a very painful mammogram, biopsy, which she describes as a nail gun to her breast, and a mastectomy all without one single tear until they found one single lymph node that had cancer in it. And uh, when the doctor sat there and described how horrific the chemotherapy would be for her fragile bone, bones, organs, systems, then she began to weep when she realized how bad this was going to be. But she endured and she survived, which is unheard of for someone in a wheelchair with quadriplegia. Just the number of years she has survived in that wheelchair is record-breaking. She has far outlived any of her her expected expiration date. And they made the most of cancer, pointing every person that came across to Jesus. In chemo, she gave out all kinds of Johnny books, gospel tracts, Bibles, rocks with scripture on them, always trying to give people hope in Christ. Johnny and Friends has flourished. It's based right here in Southern California in Agoura Hills, in the Thousand Oaks area. There are branches all over the country. Besides the practical help and the radio shows and the training, they also run family camps, family camps where families across the globe can go who have disabled children or family members and they can have fun and they can be normal they can have a great experience and find hope in Jesus. They have recently added a warrior's component to it for those that are servicemen and women who have been debilitated by injury. And they have marriage getaways because nothing kills a marriage faster than having a disabled spouse or child. And they want to strengthen these homes. The newest venture is Johnny's House that they're doing. This is where they've bought buildings in other locations internationally. They've recruited local churches and hospitals to help people with disabilities and come up with a permanent outpost for them. So these people can come and get wheelchairs and physical therapy, but also find out about Jesus and hope beyond this life. And uh, they have them in Uganda. They have them in Ukraine. They have them in El Salvador. And here's a picture of what they're doing in Ukraine right now. They're going in and taking out disabled people and their caregivers, and they're getting them across the border into Poland. Because they can't, I mean, we imagine running down from a third floor apartment to a basement when you're being bombed. These people can't do that. They don't even have medical supplies and catheters. So they're getting them out. The doctors pronounced Johnny cancer-free in 2015, only for her to have it come back in 2018. She was forced at this point to endure radiation, which they had forgone before because it was going to absolutely destroy her fragile lungs, and they knew it would be terrible. She has affectionately called the radiation machine J.L. If you know your Old Testament, J.L., the heroine of the Old Testament who took the tent peg and shoved it through the enemy's head, right? Remember that? (laughs) She calls this machine J.L. because its rays are going to destroy her mortal enemy of cancer. She was concerned about uh, how Ken would handle the cancer. And uh, she says, though, that He threw himself on Jesus. And he's pressed into every responsibility. And he's taken over her care more than ever before. He's with her every minute now, at every appointment. God told him to take care of her. And he realized that was God's plan for his life all along. Even when things got as bad as they could, which for a quadriplegic is them getting pneumonia. And Ken would have to press down on her stomach as hard as he could to get of full lungs, full of breath. Um, She told him, hey, um, this is how I'm going to go. This is how I'm going to die. This is what gets the quadriplegics, pneumonia. And he said, not on my watch. (laughs) And he pressed down hard. And at one point, she slumped over. This was on their third sleepless night in a row. She slumped over, and she stopped moving, and she stopped fighting. And he shouted, do not quit on me. You can do this, breathe, Johnny, breathe, and he pushed down again. And slowly there was a weak, sucking sound and her breaths evened out and she was back and she was okay. Johnny says that cancer was the best wedding gift she ever got because it made them fall in love with each other again and it made them fall in love with Jesus again. In an interview, Johnny says that when she sees Jesus, she wants to hear him say, well done, Johnny, good and faithful servant. I gave you a big challenge, and you grabbed it, and you remained faithful to me. The interviewer says, and Ken's gonna hear the same words, only with this critical difference. Johnny, you didn't have any choice with the challenge that God tossed at you, but Ken did. And he willingly chose this path, and he willingly chose this hardship and suffering. Ken says, I think you gave me too much credit because you see, God has given me the privilege of having a wife like Johnny. Just think of all that God has allowed Johnny to do so far. She is 72 years old today, and she has spent 55 years in her wheelchair. 45 of those, she's dedicated to ministry, to speaking of our faithful God. And uh, Johnny and friends, she has helped hundreds of thousands with her broadcasts, her messages, and uh, she's written over 50 books. A few of them are in the bookstore for you, including devotionals. This is a great devotional that's down there. It's called Finding God in Hidden Places. We even have scoured the country, and we have a children's biography for you called Swimming Against the Tide of Her Story. But let's not forget Ken's legacy. For 40 years, he's been caring for Johnny. He's been protecting her. He's been laughing with her. He's been praying for her. He's been encouraging her to use her gifts and to point people to a right relationship with God. And that's what she would want for you today, too. She once said, I would rather be in this wheelchair knowing God than on my feet without him. She would want you to know her God. So no matter where you are today, you need to hang on to grab onto the gift of forgiveness that God is offering you. Make sure to talk to your hostess or your friend who brought you. If you've never read Johnny or heard her speak before, I am confident that when you do, you will find out what the rest of us already know, and that is that Johnny Erickson Tata is the friend that you want. Not only is she fun and she will laugh with you, but she will urge you forward in your walk with Jesus. And she's the best person you could have beside you in your trouble. She's the friend that we all want to have in our back pocket. And we can have her through her podcasts, through her messages, and through her books. But the cool thing is she's already a friend of ours here at Compass Bible Church. You may not know that, but um, she knows your pastor. She actually wrote the forward to his book, Lifelines for Tough Times. She wrote the forward to that book when we received the prenatal diagnosis of our daughter's disability, spina bifida. But Vicki Zarati, where are you, Vicki? There she is. Vicky. Vicki is an actual sit across the porch kind of friend with Johnny, which the rest of us can't claim, but she's an actual person like that, and she and her husband actually just recently spoke at one of Johnny's family camps last month, and she has, an amaz- has arranged an amazing treat for us. Watch Greetings this.
1: to you, all my sisters in Christ here at Compass Bible Church. And I'm so grateful that my good friend, Vicki Zarati invited me to say a, a couple of words here at the Women's Tea. And I, I love your theme for today's event, our faithful God. Oh, girls, isn't Jesus faithful? Through every twist and turn, he's trustworthy, reliable, dependable, and he is good on his word, true to his promises, and always there with grace to help. And Vicki tells me that uh, you're going to be looking at a favorite passage from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Okay, so background. Uh, Paul's talking to Christians, right? Who are living under the madman Nero, a vicious emperor who was almost fanatical, about persecuting followers of Jesus? And Peter tells these Christians, entrust your souls to your faithful creator. That is, trust God and continue to do good. That is, obey God. Trust and obey. So you're about to be mauled by wild beasts in the Colosseum? Trust God and obey him. That is, keep doing good. You know, years ago, after I broke my neck and became a quadriplegic, 1 Peter four nineteen, um, especially with all the, the grim history surrounding it, that verse became my mainstay. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Now, at, at first, um, you know, living with, Life in a wheelchair, no use of my hands or legs. I, I thought that was way, way too simplistic. Like, I mean, come on, I'm, I'm suffering here. Life without use of my hands or my legs stuck in a wheelchair. Surely the Bible has more sophisticated remedies than, than just trusting God and obeying Him. But you know what? Over 55 years of quadriplegia, those three simple words, have been my saving grace, especially over the last decade, as I have suffered with chronic pain. Girls, it's the kind of pain that makes my quadriplegia feel like a walk in the park. I mean, sometimes in the middle of the night, around 3.30 in the morning, when sharp pain wakes me up, and uh, because of my paralysis, I cannot shift my hips to get comfortable. When that happens, I have stared at the ceiling, and I have often whispered to God, Lord, I, I, I think you're asking too much of me here, but obviously you don't think so. I mean, you think that with your help, I can get through this, I can persevere. So God, I, I, I'm gonna believe you rather than my emotions at three o'clock in the morning. And then I breathe deeply and hold fast to well, to 1 Peter four nineteen, I entrust myself to my faithful creator. He's faithful. He's proved himself trustworthy. When he died in my place so that I could escape hell, oh my goodness. If he did that, if he loved me that much, then surely he could be trusted with my pain at 3.30 in the morning. And so I trust him. And then I obey. I obey in that I use that time through the watches in the early hours of the night, to pray for others who I know are in far worse pain than I ever will be. And ladies, that time with the Lord Jesus is so utterly satisfying. I can hardly describe the, the sweetness, the precious intimacy that I enjoy with my Savior, all because like him, I have learned to trust and obey our Father God. So, girls, thank you for letting me share these few words, and I hope that in some way they have helped you. And I know that your time today is going to be so rich. It's going to be so sweet and memorable. It can't help but be as you take a close look at First Peter chapter 4, verse 19, and our faithful God. Thank you, girls, for hearing my heart, and have a, have a great day.
0: Best tea ever. (laughs) Now you can see why I've been saying that for weeks. Because I get to tell the story of that lady. And you can see why I would like you and urge you to be inspired by her, to follow her example. And uh, if anybody had a reason to stay home, to curl up in her bed, and to have a pity party, it's her she didn't and she doesn't and we shouldn't either no matter what our day holds no matter what suffering we are facing according to the will of god we need to entrust our soul to our faithful god and keep doing good and because of her and the song she just brought to our mind we are going to close out our tea teaching with that song trust and obey let's pray Dear God, we do want to thank you so much for women like Johnny Erickson Tata, for her faithfulness, for the way she is such an amazing example for us. Literally, no matter what we're facing in our life, when we look to someone like her and we see how she has faced her suffering and how she has used it for you and for your kingdom, we can be encouraged and built up and strengthened. God, help us now to trust you and obey you, no matter what you're asking of us. In Jesus' name, amen.